Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. JB, what's happening? Oh, not much. You know, hold hold up with my dog and the apocalypse. <laughs> I've been trying to get more active. One thing that I did in the past week that made me feel really productive was I went and volunteered to bail some people out of, of Rikers. Hell yes. Yeah, with the COVID emergency bail fund, they they like need a constant stream of people to bail folks out so they give you the money it's it's fundraised and kind of walk you through the process and you just have to go basically file the paperwork to help get people out of jail which is always a bad place and is especially a bad place right now because it is a very bad place during a pandemic (laughs) yeah it's not the place to be sheltered in place yeah no there is no shelter in prison yeah word oh my god well um thank you for your service thank you for doing that (laughs) you know just Um, trying to invite other people to participate (laughs) hell yeah i'm sure that such funds and such actions exist all over the world and not just in new york although rikers is particularly is a particular hellhole but i guess all prisons are hellholes i don't think that i've been giving back a lot i was really happy with my zoom pay socks and I was really happy with Zoom karaoke. I'm like happy with my long walks, but I have not been bailing people out of jail. So maybe I should get on that. In times like these, I would say everything we do is a triumph, <laughs> regardless of what it is. Thank you for saying that. I think that we all need to feel like we are experiencing some sort of triumph. Some sort of triumph of the will, if you... Oh, God. <laughs> you might say, oh, I'll cut that. <laughs> um, no, right, I um... just, oh, it's so bad. I always want to, like, like literally, I I finished a comic recently, like, like drawing one, um, and I needed to come up with a title about it, and it was about fighting Nazis and, and like, boxing, and I was like, you know, the perfect name, and in like a German context, and I was like, the perfect name for this comic would be Mein Kampf. Like, <laughs> but some asshole ruined it for everyone. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> I mean, I guess, I guess we can say that. Good, good name. Good, good memoir name. Is that, is it a, is it a memoir? It's a manifesto. It's a, yeah, it's like a shitty manifesto. It's, it's I was gonna say, it's a screed. It's a, it's a Facebook. It's a Facebook update. rant. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> I had a moment when I uploaded part one of this conversation, Why Are People Into Fascism?, which we are going to continue. But when I uploaded the first one, especially that picture that you sent me is like very imperious, which I love, obviously. It's very, it's like big top energy. But like next to Why Are People Into Fascism?, I was like, has she gone too far? She meaning me, like, like, I was like, are are people gonna like, 
is this going to get shared out of context and are people going to think? I mean, I know that we spent went to great lengths to have a <laughs> content warning about not endorsing Nazism. But uh, what if what if people think that I am unambiguously saying that I think that Nazis are hot? That that would not that would not be good. Yeah, no, I, I, I think it would be pretty tough to to make that mistake. <laughs> people make mistakes on the internet jp they do that's it's true mistakes are I, one might argue the whole internet was a mistake honestly mm. <laughs> yet here we are here we are i've definitely continued down the many rabbit holes of reading and exploration around why people are into fascism so Oh, good. All new kinds of avenues. Well, let's get into it. Let me read your bio again for a refresher for folks who are tuning in. Uh, so this is part two of Why Are People Into Fascism? And my guest is J.B. Brager. J.B. Brager is a writer and cartoonist living in Brooklyn, New York, Lenape Ho King. They are a founding editor of Pinko Magazine, which is a queer communist magazine, and the founding host of the Blue Stockings Bookstore comics reading series In the Gutter. Any updates on whether we're getting virtual In the Gutter? I can tell you that it will happen, uh, but I haven't actually made it happen yet. <laughs> Fair enough. And any anything we do is a triumph. Truly. <laughs> they hold a PhD in women's and gender studies from Rutgers University, New Brunswick. They are on all social media as well as Patreon at J-B-B-R-A-G-E-R. That's their name and that's how you can pay them. Yep. <laughs> oh, and one thing that I wanted to say it, that we didn't talk about last time is that you are a merch maven i have many pieces of your merch i have uh actually th this household has at least two sex work is work shirts with a sexy squatting babe you designed the kink out t-shirts the most recent kink out t-shirts and you have new enamel pins with like two latex hooded people or maybe they're just like disembodied latex hoods making out <laughs> i've been drawing comics for a long time and when i was in grad school and making tip-top grad school money i started thinking about how to pivot my money-making capacity into other hustles and one of those hustles was making merch and so at the time like the the really big cool thing was enamel pins kind of a a heavily saturated market these days but my enamel True. pins are very cool <laughs> they're very cool um, they're very very cool uh, i'm looking at your shop right now there's also a cop car that is on fire mm -hmm. a non-enamel button but nevertheless a button that says moans as in hormones not drones which i love and uh yeah the sex workers work decriminalized now and then this lovely like limp-wristed patch that says total pansy. The yeah. patch doesn't say that, but... Um, it just screams the, total pansy. <laughs> it just screams total pansy. And then a bunch of zines and comics. Yeah. Yeah. So so the stuff that I make, um, I mean, it's, it's a combination of just things that I think are cool and like want to make and then kind of like need to sell in order to make them happen. Um, so for example, the latex rebreather mask <laughs> that, that I turned into an enamel pin recently. A lot of the stuff that I sell was made for various different 
fundraisers or activist groups like so for example the sex workers work shirts i started selling those as a fundraiser for a third wave fund which is an organization that allocates money to sex worker-led grassroots sex worker organizing and support uh, organizations around the country they are like just literally moving money to the right places even though I am not in a position to be like giving tons of money to the organizations that I love, one one way that folks who also don't have a ton of money can support and also get something cool is, for example, by buying a t-shirt and knowing that a big chunk of the money will go to organizations that, that one might support. That is such a fabulous approach to art making and fundraising and then you know especially when the shirts have very clear political statement you're also spreading propaganda that people can look fabulous while raping the minds (laughs) (laughs) throwback throwback this is a quote throwback (laughs) yes yes yeah and so people can purchase your merch at it's just jbbrager.com. Last time we talked a lot about film and fashion, and I, I think a good segue would be to talk about fashion, specifically punk fashion and like punk subcultures and lifestyles. And it, it is something that has always sort of as, as somebody who is very into punk and is like especially into proto-punk and the like late 70s like flash in the pan in London and New York like the moment where punk was just this like truly disgusting raunchy loud nihilistic scene in a couple of places and then like kind of flared out but then has also endured I don't know and like the role of Nazi paraphernalia in punk has always really mystified me and I think I've always kind of been like I can't think about this too much because it's it's like the problematic fave thing right Mm -hmm. yeah can you talk a little bit about school us with your like knowledge of all of this history like where do you where do you want to start talking about this i think you know since you were talking about your relationship to punk and your your interest in punk i kind of want to start like with my my punk roots yeah because you know when i kind of came to punk music and punk culture Mm. through politics kind of right off the bat like the the music that i was listening to was very much in the vein of and and also just was um bands like crass and Crass, yeah. uh, you know, was a, a very anarchist, an, yeah, very anarchist and very explicitly political British art collective and, and punk rock band from Essex in England. It really, in in the nineteen seventies, uh, I think they started around like seventy seven. The idea that there were punks that that might have a more complicated relationship to fascism or to right wing politics, particularly Nazi aesthetics was kind of mystifying to me and you know I I started to encounter it as I was like getting more involved in uh going to punk shows and and also just like expanding my own musical taste you know you you mentioned David Bowie um you know I was listening to the Stooges the the Sex Pistols like it really just all of these 
like kind of famous, you know, now uh, 70s, 80s punk bands. And then also at the same time getting really interested in uh, new gay cinema, which uh, a great deal of which was coming out of England as well, particularly the work of Derek Jarman, who is to this day one of my favorite filmmakers. Absolutely. And I'm so and I'm so glad that you brought up Derek Jarman and Jubilee. Right. And and Adam Ant, because Jubilee is one of my all time favorite movies. Same. I feel like I never get a, I feel like I never get a chance to talk about it. <laughs> I have a poster of it in my house, oh, this like amazing. print of Adam Ant. And you sent me this link to this um, video for uh, the Adam Ant song Deutsche Girls, which appears in the movie. And the video has a bunch of footage from Jubilee. Mm -hmm. And even just like watching this video, I was like, ugh, I'm like due for a rewatch of this. Like for for folks who haven't seen it, you know, Derek Jarman is this like legendary queer filmmaker. I I don't know. Is avant-garde the right word to describe Derek Jarman? Just like very odd and maximalist Baroque indie filmmaker who made this like legendary film that has it, it, it has like a lot of um performers who are also in rocky horror picture show the slits are in it and it is just this very sexy weird intellectual political english punk film uh 1978 so yeah. so it's all that makes, yeah that, that makes sense it's, right it's all the same time frame and so Jer- Derek Jarman a lot of his work does this really in- plays in really interesting ways with British history so for example his film Edward II takes on British homophobia and, and you know other things the monarchy etc through the story of Edward II this monarch who was killed horribly for allegedly being homosexual. Oh, yeah. And by the way, like, we can thank Derek Jarman for Tilda Tilda Swinton. (laughs) (laughs) And Jubilee, somewhat similarly, you know, takes on the monarchy in these really interesting ways and uses Shakespeare's The Tempest as this framing to travel through time with the spirit guide Ariel. Yeah, and there's all this, like, mysticism, like, with John Dee. And, yeah, Mm -hmm. it's very... It's a very strange film, but then it also is like glamorizes being a disgusting punk, which probably is key to my my love of it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's about a bunch of queer anarchist punks in a future where law and order has totally broken down. First of all, the villain in this film is like an incredible neoliberal nightmare you know like Borgia Gins he's like the best movie villain yeah and he's he's this like Malcolm McLaren style like Svengali character oh yeah he I mean honestly like he's my favorite villain of all time and god yeah he's really good (laughs) he's like it's all you just you know like he's like eating goldfish like oh what a nightmare um and and so all of these like anarchist punks like literally the film is like about them you know trying to live their lives and like save punk while like getting killed by the police and like um they're not like good people they do bad you know they do no, very no, bad things terrible. like but um but you know they're they're doing their best uh there's also one <laughs> one of the best snuff scenes of all time Nell Campbell I think like is is having sex with this guy and he's like I'm coming and she's like no and she like wraps him in a red plastic sheet and smothers him 
Oh, yeah, so good. <laughs> anyway, so th- this is just to say that the film is taking on this conflict between sexy anarchy, basically, and fascism. And right. it, it's in a moment where this deep social conflict between fascism and uh, sexy anarchy is kind of happening, you know, in countercultures, in queer community. And we see this in a lot of the figures that are in the film and a lot of the music. So, for example, Jordan, who plays Amyl Nitrate in the film, yes. she's she was like a, a punk icon fashionista in the Malcolm McLaren tradition. Um, and like Vivian and she Westwood. Worked at- she worked at sex, yeah. But so all, all of these figures, I mean, like, so Vivian Westwood... Sid Vicious, again, Jordan, also Susie Sue, who was in the film. All of these individuals were pictured very intentionally wearing swastikas in the late 70s. They, I feel like Iggy Pop also. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, they were all up in in this style. And David Bowie, too, or like he definitely... He flirted with fascist aesthetic. Yeah. Right. There was a hiling moment with David Bowie at some point. Unpack this for me. My like very shallow understanding of all of this is that the real reason behind all of this is that punk was about shocking yeah. people. And so swastikas were shocking and you know i guess also a certain amount of like no future no masters nihilism to the point where they would be like we don't care who's offended or hurt by these symbols all we want to do is fuck shit up for the sake of fucking shit up yeah it really is not that complicated it is it's about shock value there is a way in which the hyper attention to this kind of like shocking aesthetic that is a response to you know the kind of like hippie Uh, which came before like the the hyper attention to that in some ways like hides or belies the really horrible things that people who look really normal are doing, right? So, like, it's easy to be, like, pissed at Jordan and Susie Sue for wearing swastikas when, you know, in the meantime, like, Margaret Thatcher is rising to power, spreading the economic policies of Milton Freeman and destroying the social safety net. Like, all these horrible things are happening. (laughs) And everyone's like, oh, no, but, like, these punks are are Nazis. The spectacularity of this aesthetic Mm. is important to kind of contrast to the quiet banality of, like, actual evil politics in, in the sort of, like, everyday functioning of the state that's that is that's so fascinating i love i i love what you're saying and i last time on why are people into fascism (laughs) uh, when you were talking about how fascism is at its core if it's about nothing else it's about the spectacle on one hand it makes me admire punks for sort of like cutting to the core of understanding what fascism is actually about which is the spectacle and then at the same time i'm like you fucking assholes yeah it's it's dumb and immature i mean you know it's it's just like there's a lot of punks who manage to be very very rebellious without 
you know, maybe tricking people into thinking that they were anti-Semitic, homophobic, white supremacists. And there's there's also, I mean, there's slippages. So you mentioned the song Deutsche Girls by uh, Adam and the Ants. And that song, like, they actually made them change the lyrics to why do you have to be so nasty? But they didn't change, like, the way that the song was recorded. So you can hear the original. You know, the song is like, um, I love your blonde hair, I kiss your pigtails, and I could not share the scratch of your nail and then you mark me your eyes so glassy oh why do you have to be so nazi right so it's a like it right, is so an anti-nazi totally... song <laughs> it's like this girl dumped me and she was a nazi so now i'm against right. nazis it's like but i um, still yeah. but it's still kind of a white supremacist like you know <laughs> and i'm still hung yeah well because he's still hung up on her right that song which is in poor taste and I wouldn't put it on a mixtape, even though Ooh, I, I love, I love that and, song. and um, <laughs> I would maybe put it on a mixtape for you. <laughs> uh, but I do, I do feel like that joke where he's clearly he's saying, "Why'd you have to be so Nazi?" in a way that is clearly sort of meant to use the like cadence of punk and pop music, so that it he has like plausible deniability that he's saying nasty. It's a play on words, right? And that is a joke. And it's maybe like a joke that is not for everyone or that not everyone would find funny. But that is different from wearing a shirt or a hat with a swastika on it just to shock and upset people. Mm-hmm. Like, because there's some satire involved. Yeah. That would be my argument. It's actually very funny because when you when you search Nazi porn on Pornhub, the great Jewish comedian Mel Brooks in 1983 recorded a, a Hitler rap and <laughs> it charted. Like, this song was popular and had a music video. The dancers in the music video are dressed in, like, the height of like Nazi fetish wear. They're wearing like corsets and leather harnesses and like black gloves and black boots and you know, like very little else. And they are like (laughs) explicitly kind of like spanking each other and like riding around on each other. And then through it all, Mel Brooks, who is dressed as Hitler, is rapping about the history of the Third Reich. <laughs> um. Well, so this from the man who brought us springtime for Hitler. Right. Exactly. I mean, this is in not the producers. <laughs> this is not like off brand for him. It, but it is. It is a good example of you know the sexualization and the fetishism of of Nazism is so mainstreamed that mm. a song kind of making fun of it in a way is a song that could be commercially successful, but then also has persisted to come back around to people viewing, and, you know, this is evidenced by by its existence on Pornhub, it comes back totally. around to being something that people look back on and be like, wow, it's so sexy to see these dancers and harnesses and, like, Nazi uniforms spanking each other. Oh, my God. Um, Just mute the Mel yeah. Brooks part, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Or not. or not. I mean, whatever you're into. <laughs> uh, I mean, this that also comes back to a very important principle of who gets to make those jokes and who gets to 
reappropriate these symbols of oppression for either erotic purposes or satirical purposes or creative or aesthetic purposes. And like, I would I would certainly say that Mel Brooks gets to make as much fun of Nazis as he wants. Right. So, I mean, one one would argue or one could argue that because Mel Brooks is a very publicly Jewish comedian, that his engagement with his comical engagement with fascism takes the teeth out of it. Right. It makes it ridiculous in in a way that actually kind of makes it like unattractive. Right. (laughs) Right. And functions as a not a well, it's not like a reclamation like we're trying to like reclaim from a a trauma perspective. It's Mm. it's a reclamation of the ability to control the narrative. Right. So it's like like I am telling my own story. Right. And also you said it very well that you are, that it's taking the teeth out of it. It's like if you can if you can ridicule something. I mean, this is why despots are so terrified of satire and ridicule. Right. Because it actually does undermine their power. Right. But but the thing about taking the teeth out of fascism is that the teeth is actually a big part of what makes it sexy. Right. So so the the contradiction and the humor in Mel Brooks music video is that he is engaging with like all of the accoutrement or all of the like fetish gear that we think of when we think of the sexualized aesthetic of fascism. But then he's doing it in a ridiculous context. Right. But if we if we took the joke out of it, if it was just the fetish gear a, it would be hotter, and B, it would be in line with this like long history of introducing that aesthetic into not only, you know, punk and fashion and this kind of like public engagement with sexy fascism, but also the, I mean, still public, but arguably more, slightly more private engagement with the actual, like, not just sexualized, but sexual kink around fascism, right? I mean, which we see across kink culture, but also in not quite pop culture, but we'll say, like, you know, in in culture, in all this queer work, for example, in Kenneth Anger's films like Scorpio Rising, in in certainly the the work of Tama Finland, in in Yukio Mishima's work, which is actually more complicated because Yukio Mishima was actually a fascist. Oh, great. Yeah, which we can talk about. And he's, he's you know, one of my favorite writers and one of my favorite artists. Um, but he he directly tied his interest in hyper-masculine men, right, His as, as sexual objects, and, like, right. his sexual interest in uniforms and militarism and authority and, you know... Uh, BDSM into like literally trying to throw a coup and take over the state to like restore it to its like pre-defeat in World War II fascist glory, right? And having inevitably failed in this pursuit, he committed seppuku, right? Like ritual suicide. Um, Fascinating story. (laughs) But anyway, (laughs) this is a guy who, for example, he liked to take self-portraits with himself like full of arrows like saint saint sebastian like wrapped in tubes you know he he really loved like a sexy self-portrait that might be a great segue into gay fascism or gay fascist yeah get, i mean gay fascists just like the rest of fascists except gay ever catch 
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. So when we talk about fascism and punk, and when we talk about gay fascists, the the overlap, of course, is largely in, I would say, in the skinhead community, right? And in as much as that constitutes a community, (laughs) the skinhead subculture. And so skinheads are really interesting because they they're not inherently fascist or inherently racist. Skinhead is a it's a working class subculture that is about glorifying a working aesthetic right and right. and also like being against uh, the state often right so so right. thinking again about thatcherite uh britain where these a lot of these punk subcultures are coming out of and also i mean the skinheads are really they're really uh informed by diasporic culture so a lot of like interestingly a lot of like skinhead culture comes back around through jamaican rude boy culture Mm. so so thinking about like diasporic colonialism in this context um but in thatcherite england margaret thatcher like famously is destroying the unions and is uh, repressing strikes particularly minor strikes really violently you know like all capitalists she's helping to foment racial unrest as a as a way of cementing class divides right so this this is like a classic move this is like reconstruction in the united states don't let poor white people and poor black people work together because then they'll overthrow the owning classes that's like it's not a conspiracy theory it's like an actual strategy right totally so you see the introduction of this kind of anti-blackness and anti-immigrant sentiment, homophobia, etc., into white working class culture, which is not to, like, excuse this at all, but it's, like, very much about resentment towards the circumstances of working people's lives, right? Like, my life is shitty, and I can't get out of this. I need to blame someone, and I'm being given a convenient scapegoat. And so yeah, this sounds um, familiar, right? And so you have these divides happening in in these these subcultures, and so skinhead subculture, so named because they shave their heads, right? And it's it's right. like a very clear aesthetic. It's like blue jeans, black leather boots, with and a lot of like skinhead politics. You can tell through like shoelaces. You know, there's like mm. like the the anti-fascist shoelaces or like the white supremacist shoelaces which i think are white pretty straightforwardly um (laughs) and you know wearing the a-frames yeah suspenders and you know having tattoos like being into particular kinds of like music like oi punk music is like skinhead punk it's also like a hyper masculinist working class culture and it is a culture that very much lends itself to mass for mass gay attraction right like if you're right if you're into hyper masculine 
working class looking dudes, which is like, again, a whole subculture of attraction or a whole culture right. of attraction, then yeah. this is an aesthetic that works for you. Right. And so, totally. so of course there's going to be these overlaps between or like these complications around identity to jump back in time. And then we're going to come back to skinheads, Nazism and homosexuality have never been as ne'er shall the two touch as as one might imagine certainly homosexual men in particular were victimized by the nazi regime were placed in camps but often that was a lot along lines of gender transgression Mm. uh, Mm. along lines of political affiliation uh along lines of like uh public outness of you know other identities like perhaps being jewish at the same time as many homosexual Again, men in particular, but also some women were, and some, you know, folks who identified otherwise were being targeted. There were fairly openly gay men within the Nazi party, most famously Ernst Raum, right, who who subscribed to a vision of fascism that embraced homosexuality as an acceptable and even necessary component of an all-male militaristic society. And this was actually a vein within Nazism that people were very familiar with, which we we see in a 1937 dystopian novel by a a British woman named Catherine Burdekin. The novel is called Swastika Night, and it's set like 800 years in the future or something. And it's like the Nazis won the war, the whole world is in the Thousand Year Reich. And she takes Nazi ultra misogyny and this kind of like inclination towards, if not homosexuality, certain certainly homosociality, right? Mm, yeah. To its natural conclusion of like a super gay womanless future, right? Where women are like kept Oof. almost as, as like breeding animals and men are like worshiping the cult of masculinity. And there's also a, a, a kind of like reintroduction of the um, the Greek model of like, you know, the older man and the beautiful younger man in these. Oh, yes. Yeah. If folks are interested in Ernst Raum, uh, <laughs> the Bad Gays podcast did a good feature on him. Oh, cool. And they also, they've certainly uh, done features on other right-wing queers like Pim Fortune, who's like an awful anti-immigrant, um, uh, Islamophobic uh, gay politician in the Netherlands. And also they've done a feature on this like very fascinating uh British neo-Nazi skinhead named Nikki Crane. And so Nikki Crane is like a classic skinhead covered in like Nazi tattoos. And he also happened to be extremely involved in in gay life, right? Like he wasn't just like secretly gay. He was like, on Tuesdays I go to the Nazi club and on Saturdays I go to the gay club, right? Like Oh man. And you know, he, he was kind of like a really famous, in as much as one, I guess, can be a, a famous neo-Nazi, both because of his, like, sketchy political involvement or whatever, but also because he was, like, the front man of a, of a neo-Nazi punk band. And so when he got outed, there was a, a story that ran, and I'm sure there were many other stories like this, but the one that I found from 1992, the title of the, of the newspaper article was Nazi Nick is a pansy. And they spelled wow. pansy like P-A-N-Z-I. So like a reference to panzers, which like the German tanks or whatever there. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. You know, the story goes on to say, like, weird secret he kept from gay bashers. Nazi thug Nick Crane kept a secret from his gay bashy mates. He is homosexual himself. My instinct with all of this is to say that these are, like, log cabin Republicans that are, like, shooting themselves in the foot. But what I'm hearing from you is that it's actually not all that contradictory no for gay men in particular well i'm i mean i'm gonna extend it please jack halberstam who is a a queer study scholar who you know i have i have a number of intellectual disagreements with but um (laughs) many years ago at a lecture um was talking about british forays into fascism and talking about during world war ii he said you know british lesbians got really into fascism because they were into uniforms and it is true (laughs) that british lesbians got really into fascism even gertrude stein who was like a a jewish lesbian you know kind of like glorified and and kind of like dipped her toe into getting a little into fascism and i i think that they're there are a couple reasons for this. One certainly is that fascism is sexy, right? Which is the thing that we keep coming back to. And that does have to do with uniforms in part. But it also has to do with the fact that like sexuality is not inherently political. So if you could summarize for people for whom it's not intuitive, like you just said very confidently, fascism is sexy. If you could summarize why is fascism sexy? What would you say? Fascism is sexy because it is dangerous, confident, and leather. <laughs> I mean, fascism is sexy because it's scary, honestly. Yeah, that's that's a that's very that's a very good way of putting it. And it's comforting at the same time cuz you don't have to make any decisions. Like, we're afraid of it because we, you your power is taken away, and we want it because we want our power to be taken away. I feel like there's also an element of what you were talking about last time of the hypnotic force of the leader figure that, like, when you contemplate fascism, you contemplate something that is so that is so powerful that it holds so many people in thrall. And even if you're not enthralled to it, you can kind of become curious of like, what could be so powerful and so appealing that it could have control over so many people and make so many people do so many extreme things. Like, I guess there is something sexy about that too yeah yeah it's i mean it's the thrall it's it's the power over the crowd that it is so attractive so many people have written about this in 1949 uh jean-paul sartre who's who's not a fascist right is he's writing about the entry of the german army into paris in 1940 and his his protagonist, uh, whose name is Daniel, so Sartre writes, Daniel was not afraid. He yielded trustingly to those thousands of eyes. He thought our conquerors, and he was supremely happy. He looked them in the eye. He feasted on their fair hair, their sunburn faces, with eyes which looked like lakes of ice, their slim bodies, their incredibly long and muscular hips. 
He murmured how handsome they are. Something had fallen from the sky. It was the ancient law. The society of judges had collapsed. The sentence had been obliterated. These ghostly little khaki soldiers, the defenders of the rights of man, had been routed. An unbearable, delicious sensation uh, spread through his body. He could hardly see properly. He repeated, gasping, as if it were butter. They're entering Paris as if it were butter. He would like to have been a woman to throw them flowers. Jesus Yeah. Christ. Like that I mean that that is the the sex appeal of fascism, right? Like it's it's the desire to to like be violated and to have no control, to be cut through like butter and then spread. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that is so fucked up and true. Yeah. Oh, I started I started reading the article that you sent me. Oh, with uh, Adrian Rich's. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so in Fascinating Fascism, the Susan Sontag article runs um, in the New York Review of Books in 1975 um, in February. And then in March, Adrian Rich writes a, um, a re- reply, um, mm-hmm. which then um, Susan Sontag gets to also respond to. Um, but but basically the the tenor of Adrian and I, I love Adrian rich. I don't think her politics were exceptionally well-developed in, in a mm. few directions, but like incredible poet, <laughs> the nature of her like distaste in large part is like that. She thinks that for, for Sontag's argument in this previous article is that like Sontag doesn't consider feminism enough one of the arguments that she's trying to make is that fascism is like inherently masculinist. And so, interesting. yeah. So she writes like, what are the themes of domination and enslavement, prurience and idealism, male physical perfection and death control, submissive behavior and extravagant effort, the turning of people into things, vitality identified with physical ordeal, the objectification of the body as separate from the emotions. What are these but masculinist, virilist, patriarchal values? Isn't the black leather brothel ecstasy and death fantasy far less a lesbian fantasy than if and lesbian here used not only to describe like women loving women but like also the the equation of lesbian and feminist that occurred in the 70s um would uh-huh. be my aside um than a fantasy of heterosexual males and the male homosexuals they oppress and isn't the infatuation with these themes at this time possibly one aspect of the backlash of a false and threatened virility against the feminist rejection of those values and their increasing rejection in the pervasively changing consciousness of women who do not call themselves feminist? It's very second wave. Oh, it's it's a hardcore second wave. And and Adrian Rich is featured in a, a book that I own that is called Against Sadomasochism, which is a bunch of, of second wave feminists you know, many of whom have great things to say about other stuff, arguing that mm. sadomasochism is inherently patriarchal and violent and represents yeah, yeah, false yeah. consciousness. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. exactly. And so, so that's essentially what she's saying here, right? Is that yeah, the yeah. the sexualization of fascism is like masculinist, and basically, if women were like more liberated, they wouldn't be into leather, and therefore, they like wouldn't be into fascism. Which, snore. Yeah, which is, like, total, total <laughs> snore fest. And, like, also doesn't, I mean, it doesn't actually unpack or account for the deep attraction of a large swath of people with different identities and different politics 
not only on the one hand to actual fascism, but also to, you know, what she's identifying as the trappings of fascism that she really sees as the problem, right? Which is like BDSM, leather, fantasy. Unless she, um, unless one contends with, with desire, (laughs) then it's like, you're never going to get anywhere. That's, that's a pull quote right there. (laughs) I love to collect old leather magazines and old old kink magazines and art books and things like that. So if anyone has any good ones that they want to send me, let me know. (laughs) Yeah. But one, one of the issues that I have of drummer magazine, which is a, a gay leather magazine from 1994 is a, it's a, gay skinheads themed issue wow and, yeah and it it really earnestly is like trying to draw a clear division between like a working class sexual subculture that is like men like hyper masculine men who love hyper masculine men who like a- ascribe to a particular aesthetic versus racist neo-nazi skinheads and so Jack Ranella, who is writing in this magazine in, in 1994, one of the things that he says, which I, I think really comes back to the essentials of fantasy and fetish, he says the skinhead's white racism represents the antithesis of the leather credo. It contains no consent, no safety, and no sanity. I wanted to ask you, actually, hearing you talking about this gay male fascist idea that we've explored in a couple of different ways of like this fantasy or this like world of mask for mask desire. Do you think that it is possible for such a subculture to exist without being tainted by misogyny and implicit in this quote also white racism also known as racism um, or like white supremacy do you think that that is possible if if it's possible for skinhead culture to exist without i find tom of finland drawings really hot mm-hmm. but i don't want to live in a world where only tom of finland men exist right right so right. like this sort of like extreme version of of a vision of that like hyper mask for hyper mask valorization of militaristic uniforms kind of world and i'm i'm wondering if you think that it is possible for a subculture like that to exist without being inherently misogynistic and white supremacist Mm. i think that there's always the possibility <laughs> that any subculture <laughs> can, you know, maybe exceed its its problems, right? Across the board, white, gay, white, queer, white, lesbian subcultures are deeply racist and <laughs> deal with a lot of misogyny and racism. I think the thing that, like, that makes, you know, for example, like, Tom of Finland okay is a that as long as there is pluralism as long as there is like variety then it's fine right because then you you have tom of but you also have you know all of the other you know sexy queer art that exists that shows different kinds of bodies and different kinds of desire and if all of that like if we have access to all of that then that 
is is very different than like having to live in a world where like Tom of Finland, you know, hypermasculinity is the only acceptable form of desire or, you know, mm. like you have to like look a particular way or whatever in order to to access desire, right? Mm-hmm. So I I think that it's very important to like make a lot of space for the things that people find sexy, but then also to, again, not conflate those things with people's politics. Totally. So do you feel like this quote from Drummer Magazine is making an argument for why there is no place for gay skinheads in no, this, mother culture? No, this is making an argument for gay skinheads. It's just saying that it's like you... Like, yes, skinheads know racism, right? Like, that the argument is that gay skinheads, like, their politics are about class solidarity. They are explicitly anti racist. They are anti police. They are, you know, anarchists. And the things that they're into is like leather boots and shiny bald heads and, you know, mm. like metal piercings and lots of tattoos and, like, you know, skin tight white tank tops and that is all great and the thing that is not great is like racist violence and so they're basically he's saying like the thing that we kind of keep coming back to that it's very different to wear a outfit in you know the dungeon that is like a little bit inspired by a police uniform and being a cop Mm. It is interesting. Where do you stand on this complicated issue of whether or not simply wearing those uniforms or 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 displaying those symbols is an act of violence? I mean, I I think that this is like kind of a of a personal question. Yeah. If I'm at a play party and I see someone wearing um, you know, a what what are those the like a leather cap? a latex like uniform i am fine with that if i see someone wearing a swastika i'm not fine with that and because i think that there are symbols that can't be reclaimed and that that are triggering and like do violence to the people around you totally i'm curious about that spectrum I don't know if we should draw a line. Like, what is the distinction? How how can you tell? How can you make a good judgment about the distinction between this whole uniform that Drummer Magazine in 1994 is like making the case that that look, that uniform can represent all these things, but not all these other things. That it can like represent class solidarity, but not white supremacy, right? But like. But then when you get into certain symbols, certain insignia, then that is like a bridge too far. Right. Like, I'm sure whatever people obviously are going to disagree with me on this. But like, I really don't care what people do in their their private sexual lives. Um, Yeah. And like, so, for example, one of I think like the hottest stories that Patrick Califia ever wrote is this story Mm. about this dyke that gets kidnapped by two cops and like brutally tortured by them. Right. And at the end of the story, you find out. Yeah. Two male cops. 
And at the end of the story, you find out that these are, like, two of her gay best friends, and it's her birthday. And, like, for her birthday, she wanted to be, like, brutally raped by cops who are actually consensually non-consenting, like, fulfilling her fantasy as her good friends, right? Like... And love that. Right. And it's it's super hot because it's like scary and violent and terrifying, but it's consensual and it's not real. And but you also but uh, well, so it's fictional. It's a fictional. It's a fictional story. It's also interesting to think about the difference between like a BDSM porn that has the performer saying up top, like, this is my fantasy as opposed to like a prose fiction where the reveal is at the end right because like part of the structural trick of that is that you read the whole story not realizing that it is a consensual non-consent scene you're like in you're reading it with the context of it being a fantasy right and and like uh, you know, Pat, like Patrick Calipia and Samuel Delaney, two two of my favorites, friends of the pod, friends of the pod, some of my favorite <laughs> sex writers. They they enter a space of fantasy that is very dangerous and sometimes uncomfortable, and really totally. does make you examine why you think certain things are are sexy, or like why something that you really don't normally think is sexy might turn you on in a particular context. Yeah. That said, if that fantasy of the the cop gangbang, you know, whatever, it's not not quite a gang, but uh, <laughs> let's get let's get technical here. <laughs> if that was happening, you know, in in a public dungeon space, it would probably make me really uncomfortable because I am a person who finds cops to be very frightening in real life and like I don't totally. I don't want to be in a space where someone is dressed as a cop right and so I mean I I would honestly extend that even to like if folks do want to engage in any kind of Nazi fantasy like if you are not an actual fascist or an anti-semite or a Nazi and like you have a fantasy that involves dressing up as a Nazi and then like getting plowed by, you know, General MacArthur or like whatever it may be, <laughs> like, <laughs> like gangbanged by liberated camp inmates. Like, I, you know, that I really don't care. I just like personally would be triggered if that was happening in front of me. Yeah. Like, you know, in the same way that like I would never refer to. A submissive as a slave because mm-hmm. good, I good comparison. yeah because like I you know I am like very cognizant of the history of slavery and like it makes me uncomfortable and I think that there can be things that are like politically problematic or like relationally problematic about that but like the reality is for me personally that like I don't want to like be doing a scene and like end up thinking about you know the genocidal violence of slavery the whole time and if i was referring to someone as a slave i would just start thinking about that <laughs> like, if, if someone yeah. was dressed as you know a, a cop i would just be thinking about police violence like right, and i right, don't right. find that to be sexy at all yeah i mean that goes back to the mel brooks thing of like like the rule of thumb about oppressive language that like if the word has been used to oppress you then it is yours to reclaim and it makes me think about that as a rule of thumb for scenes for like sex fantasy 
scenes as well that like if you're somebody who has experienced gender violence or the threat of gender-based violence then incorporating like a rape fantasy into a scene like sort of seems like yeah that's an anxiety that you are dealing with in in society whereas like if you are somebody who is like at the top of the gender food chain and you're like let's do some rape play it's like maybe you know just just like let's let's do some let's do some thinking about that let's do some thinking and some talking about that before we do it like not saying you can't do it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, you know, I I know that fo- folks had a lot of mixed feelings about the... Re- Slave play? Yeah. <laughs> you know, which I I did have the opportunity to see. But um, Jeremy O'Harris's Slave Play, that Slave Play is about, you know, these, these interracial couples working through what it means to have, have an interracial relationship in mm. the context of the historical trauma of slavery and racism by engaging explicitly in like bdsm fantasy race play and it is yeah i I (laughs) didn't i haven't gotten to see it and i have heard mixed things from kinky people who i know who went to see it and i don't know all of the details of everything that happens in it but I did read an interview with Jeremy O'Harris where I was a little bit like, it sounds like you just started thinking about BDSM when you wrote this. Yeah. And it kind of made me feel a little bit like, hey, I'm a white person, so I am not in, nor do I wish to be, like in a position of telling you how to talk about slavery, but like uh, I am in a position to talk about how you are engaging in the themes of BDSM in your work. And I don't know, I, I am curious what you think. Yeah, I like I, I do think that the play has like things to say about race and relationships that, you know, I think are things that some people are already thinking about and maybe other people weren't already thinking about. But I certainly would not look to slave play as like a model for how to engage in responsible consensual BDSM. Mm. And I think that it, it's also a case that the characters in the play are themselves not necessarily or are explicitly not lifestyle BDSM players, but are people right. who are using BDSM as a mode of therapy, which I don't recommend. You know, I I think that there is a way in which, like, we can explore how desire and trauma are interwoven through our sexual practice, and we sh- certainly should be thinking about that. Um, you know, you, you mentioned, like, rape fantasies is obviously a, a big area of this, but, like, if that is the only place that you're, like, trying to work through your shit, then you need to get a therapist, Well, and also it leaves out the function of desire, which is like, of course, like an elusive, maybe like ultimately like impossible to wrangle element of how a power dynamic scene plays out. But like we do it because we're hot for it and we want to. The role that that desire plays in how the scene plays out is like essential to it so so the 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 like concept of people who are at least starting out anyway without like an explicit desire to to like live out this fantasy Mm -hmm. is 
a little dubious. Yeah. But then also, I mean, you know, I, I think like a, a thing that is like very clearly explored in slave play that I think is is a, a really good question and has been a question that that I've actually, you know, faced and don't really have a good an- answer for. Mm. What happens when in your play, whether it's, you know, with a, a, a play partner or a client, like if someone, for example, wants to engage in race play and like you are calling that person mm. the n-word like through the, the lens of their desire like how mm. how does that not seep into your relations outside of that space it's a great question yeah like it's it's really asking us to think about not only how our desire is informed by society and history but then also how our desire shapes the way that we move through the world outside of that space and you know i think bdsm has so like the the culture of consent and the culture of negotiation and the culture of openness is so good for like being able to talk about all of the other you know uh, realms of your life in terms of how you relate to people but also can shape those in in really scary ways, which is why, you know, for example, like uh, in 24-7 DS relationships, I think folks have to Mm. be really careful that that doesn't enter the realm of of an abusive, controlling relationship because the thing you're sexualizing is like hurting and controlling another person. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And having like total dominion over their lives. Right. Or relinquishing dominion over your yeah. life. You know, you just, you reminded me of one of my very, very first clients when I was first starting out as a dominatrix. Brought me a Catholic schoolgirl skirt that I still have to this day. It's from Hustler. So it is basically like a belt with Velcro on it. And he was like, put this on and then like put this blouse on. And then he wanted me to tease him and bully him and use anti-Semitic epithets. And I don't think he had any idea I was Jewish. And I was like, this is so wild. But I was also up for it because there was just something so like... I don't know, the like absurdity of it was interesting to me and like sort of entertaining. Ultimately, those are my words to reappropriate and and they're his too. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't know if he thought I was Catholic or <laughs> if he cared. <laughs> but um but that was that was like crucial to the fantasy. It really is a clear circumstance in which like the thing that can be sexy is the taboo, right? Like We are engaging in the breaking of taboos. We are doing things that would not be acceptable in our everyday lives or in society and that we're not supposed to want. Right. And, you know, you brought up this element of it already yourself. But there, for for me, I will say there is totally a difference between what I would be willing to do for a client for money versus how I would feel about something if I had a partner who wanted to do that same thing with me right one of the losses of the way that that sex work is often structured is that Mm. there really is not like relational space to have those kinds of conversations often to be like usually yeah yeah, to to say like hey so can we like talk about why you want this thing and like just you Mm. know like talk like talk about this like real people (laughs) yeah yeah not just be like yeah anything you want (laughs) Give me the money. Give me that uh, cash. Yeah, no, totally. 
Yeah, you know, you're also reminding me of a story that I think that I started to tell you. I was collaborating on this art project with a queer art and activism elder and somehow the topic of BDSM came up as it tends to do when I'm around I guess like the general topic of BDSM or me being a dominatrix like led directly into he's he's Jewish and and it led like directly into him saying you know I have always found BDSM confusing because I just don't think that Jewish people would ever be turned on by being dominated in a way that was reminiscent of fascism. And I was like, I disagree with you, but also kind of like the way that he was framing it was like, yep, I've already decided Mm -hmm. that this is not a thing. And uh, I was kind of like, I don't know if I need to try to convince you a 60-year-old Jewish artist activist who lived through HIV like I don't I don't know if I need to like convince you that like some Jews do want to be like trampled by leather boots (laughs) but I'm curious how you feel about this topic of like does desire emerge from people who like have experienced this trauma from the perspective of you know the oppressed person and like how that plays out differently for folks who who have been oppressed versus are either the oppressor or part of the demographic of people who could potentially be the oppressor yeah you know i i mean i i think that like obviously there's no such thing as desire that's not shaped by by society and there there's the level on which like i think that in the same way that folks who experience oppression or have experienced violence have the right to reclaim any kind of language that that they want like folks have Mm. the right to reclaim any kind of desire that they want for themselves you know as long as as that is something that you know is like supporting them and and making them happy yeah but i mean honestly if it's not making them happy they still have the right to do it but (laughs) totally but certainly you know even if you're not a member of those of those like constituent groups the Holocaust, for example, is in the cultural zeitgeist, you know, to to say the least. Like, it's something that mm. that everyone has access to. And like, you know, if if you mm. if you grew up watching Schindler's List and mm. there was like something weirdly sexy about it to you, like that's a thing that you're you're going to have to contend with and figure out what to do with, regardless of mm. what your identity is. I personally have always felt like more uncomfortable with people who are from very privileged groups who identify as not not just tops but like especially as doms mm. like when they're like white men and particularly if their partners are not from those groups so like when they're like right. white men who tend to dominate women of color or whatever like i am 
inherently suspicious of those people and maybe that's it's not just so fair. literal like it's just so literal right it's like oh look at this like yeah like literal sexualization of the power dynamics of society i share your dubiousness about that so what is sexy about punching nazis in the face what isn't sexy about punching Nazis in the face? <laughs> Do you get off on punching Nazis in the face? I love violence. <laughs> I think the 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 sexualization of of fascism and anti-fascism, right? Like it all crosses mm. like so many different areas of desire, right? Like when we think about kink, like the things that we're into, right? Tat- taboo shock value power and fear even like especially with nazis like force breeding and medical mm. kinks hyper masculinity authoritarianism uniforms and then like the particular things that really come in when we think about the the broadly conceived area of punching nazis into the face is like the classic a like villain hero damsel in distress fantasy and then b like totally. the revenge fantasy but then uh, also yes. just like the the joy of righteous violence (laughs) like i could watch richard spencer getting punched in the face over and over and over again i might not incorporate that into my you know self-pleasure practice but i will get pleasure out of it it's all in a continuum yeah it's absolutely i think that it, it does go back to the thing that we were talking about at the end of our last discussion about you know how now like anti-fascists get to be the sexy ones with the sexy leather boots that we have like the opportunity to like (laughs) revel in in the ways that we get to live our desires in in any way that we want yeah and like that that is one of the like great promises of like liberation right that even Mm. if fascism has like these sexy elements about it we are absolutely able to extract the things that we find sexy to play with them in ways that are fun and feel good without taking on authoritarianism without taking on violence against vulnerable groups of people yeah and that as we you know peel those things away from fascism we see the like gross underbelly of that that looks a lot like Stephen Miller you know who is not Mm. sexy and Mm. then like once you reveal that thing I mean you can like dr pimple popper it right yeah like literally (laughs) like you can like excise it from from Mm. oh i see like society like and i mean and you know that might look like i'm not a pacifist like you know i i feel fine about people punching nazis in the face um but i also you know feel great about just shunning them you know just like get get out like we don't we don't want you in our dungeons we don't want you in our lives like certainly not you know in any positions of power and that feels nice to be able to enact and you know i look forward to a future in which we can enact that on a national and global scale because you know obviously unfortunately we are in a moment where there is a accelerated and you know extremely visible Uh, resurgence of right-wing fascism in the world and so like I think it's more important than ever that we not only have these conversations but also find ways to fight back 
right? And, like, that is not going to be in our sexual practice. Like, our sexual practice is what, like, fortifies us in order to then go do the work, I would say, like, normally in the streets, but right now, like, on, on Zoom or whatever, you know, like, on, or on, on Jitsi, which I think is, like, the better Zoom, right? Mm-mm. That is such a beautiful sentiment and a really good note to end on. Remind the folks where they can find more of your work and give you money. Yeah, I am on all social media at JB Brager, B-R-A-G-E-R, jbbrager.com, JB Brager on Patreon. Is there anything coming up that you want to let people know about <laughs> in court? In, in quarantine? I will say that a thing to be paying attention to, I mean, there there's a lot of legislation that's happening right now and a lot mm. uh, that is just being kind of like snuck through because we are in quarantine. And one of the things in that in that vein is the Earn It Act, which uh, yes. threatens end-to-end encryption, um, which is both very important for... Uh, political organizing and general privacy, but also is another way in which uh, our current government is really threatening the livelihoods, safety, and rights of sex workers. There's a lot of folks who are doing work on this, but one that I would like to hype right now um, is Hacking Hustling, which is doing a lot of activism around this. And I would just say, even though I, I can't like think of what exactly is happening right now to just try to follow and pay attention to what hacking hustling is doing around this because things are coming very fast and and they're putting out a, a lot of information and doing a lot of work on this right now fully agree thank you for bringing that up and thank you for coming back for a second session it has been so enlightening and awesome and sexy and i can't wait to do something like this again with you in person my pleasure i miss you i miss you too (sighs) everything is so uncertain but we will we will see what happens but um yeah it's really it's been really fun thank Uh, you i'll talk to you soon okay bye jamie bye Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 